welcome to Freaked Out with your co-hosts, Liz and Landon. What's up, everybody? Guys, this is going to be a quick week. (laughs) We definitely have quite a few episodes coming over the next couple of weeks and the month, including the Illuminati and Aaliyah. And then we just recently won the Carly Geis episode. So woohoo, guys, you're doing great with these bonuses. We definitely have a lot of exciting things coming up on the roster for you guys, including a raffle that we will be doing very soon. So please keep an eye out for that on the Facebook group. If you want to be involved in the raffle, you do have to be a patron currently active in order to participate. Absolutely. And that group on Facebook is called Freaked Out Podcast. All right. So today we're going to be covering the Chicago Tylenol murders. This episode has been something we've had on the list for a very long time. We just never got around to doing it. So I'm glad to say that we're going to go back in time to 1982, which is one year before I was born. So let's go back in our time machine and get going. When we do any sort of cases, whether they be unsolved or it's some sort of solved case from the 80s, it's just I love it because it's an era that I love. (laughs) I honestly think you might have died in the 80s, so perhaps you didn't get to have your full 80s experience, and I think that's what you're missing from it. I would definitely agree with that. I think, like, I know I was around in the 80s. I just feel like I was, you know, but I was definitely not anticipating you saying anything like that. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Alrighty, so I plan to do more types of TikToks. Oh, and by the way, for those of you who have not started following the new TikTok account, it is called Freaked Out LL. There are a few fakes walking around, but this one is just Freaked Out, two L's at the end, and that's it. Some have one L, some have three L's. They're just trying to copy me, so just make sure you're following the right one, which should be easy to determine because I think we're sitting at 33.5 thousand followers as of right now. Now, the Chicago Tylenol murders were a series of poisoning deaths resulting from drug tampering in the Chicago metropolitan area in 1982. The victims consumed Tylenol-branded acetaminophen capsules, which had been laced with potassium cyanide. Seven people died in the original poisonings, and then there were several more deaths in the subsequent copycat crimes. Now, no suspects have been charged or convicted of the poisoning, but New York City resident James William Lewis was convicted of extortion for sending a letter to Tylenol's manufacturer, Johnson & Johnson, and took responsibility for the deaths and demanded $1 million to stop them. The incident led to reforms in the packaging of an over-the-counter drugs and to the federal anti-tampering laws. Now, on September 28th of 1982, 12-year-old Mary Kellerman was hospitalized after consuming a capsule of extra-strength Tylenol. She died the next day. On September 29th, six other individuals consumed contaminated Tylenol, including Adam Janis, who was only 27, and Stanley Janis, who was 25, and Teresa Janis, who was 20, who each took Tylenol from that single bottle. All six Janices and Mary McFarland, who was 31, and Paula Prince, who was 35, and Mary Rayner, who was 27, would all ultimately die from this consumption. It's a pretty lethal dose, even just a tiny bit, you know. Adam's death, basically what happened there was Nurse Helen Jensen 
only public health official had visited the Janice's household and discovered a bottle of Tylenol with the accompanying receipt indicating that it had been purchased the same day. Noticing that there were six pills missing, she turned the bottle over to the investigator, Nick Pichot, and reported her suspicion and that it was related to their deaths. Now, initially, they thought that Helen, the nurse, was full of shit and that she had no idea what she was even talking about since she was, you know, a woman. But then they started to take her expertise seriously. I mean, right, though? It was probably one of those moments like, calm down. Tylenol's not going to hurt them. Like a doy. <laughs> but something that's laced in it would. Anyways, the detective called Dr. Edmund Donahue, a deputy chief medical examiner for Cook County, who suspected that the cyanide may be the culprit. And they asked the detective to smell the bottle. Now, when he had smelled it, it was like an almond-like scent. Now, Donahue asked the county's chief toxologist to test the capsules, and they determined that each of the remaining 44 capsules from the bottle contained nearly three times the fatal amount of cyanide. Authorities held a press conference advising the public not to take Tylenol for the time being. <laughs> Imagine getting that, like out there like a, a news broadcast don't take Tylenol and then uh, there's probably like 20 people who are like I'm taking this gnarly <laughs> drug like you know <laughs> they're but, like yeah we're gonna the government's after us they're, they're telling, telling us, us what to do we're gonna take the Tylenol <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> sorry I just you know just side visions here anyway <laughs> now by chance the bottle of Tylenol that Kellerman used was inventoried by the paramedics. Investigators noticed that the Janus bottle and the Kellerman bottle came from the same lot, MC2880. The Johnson & Johnson issued a recall for all Tylenol from that lot. But when the tainted bottles from other lots were discovered, for example, the pills in the Mary McFarland's possession were traced to lots 1910MD and MB2738. The recall expanded to cover all those lots and any bottles of extra-strength capsules from any other lot purchased in the Chicago area, making one of the largest pharmaceutical recalls ever. I mean, yeah, holy moly. Right? A multi-agency investigation found the tamper pills to have been sold or on shelves at a variety of stores in the Chicago area, including two different Jewel Foods locations, one in Arlington Heights and the other one in Elk Grove Village, an Osco drugstore in Schomburg, and a Walgreens and a Dominic's, both were also in Chicago, and a Frank's Finer Foods in Winfield. The bottles had been purchased, but due to an off-scent, not used by Linda Morgan. Oh, and by the way, Linda Morgan was actually a wife of a judge as well, a sitting judge. Just a fun fact there. Anyway, she did make a call not taking the pills. In an effort to reassure the public, Johnson & Johnson, the manufacturer of Tylenol, distributed warnings to hospitals and distributors and halted Tylenol products and advertising. After another incident, there was more bottles of Tylenol in California. A nationwide recall of Tylenol products was issued on October 5, 1982, that estimated 31 million bottles were in circulation with a retail value of over... 
a hundred million dollars, which apparently equivalates to like three hundred and three million now. I believe that, and I believe I was partaked in the Tylenol deaths in the eighties. Do you? Yeah, I feel like maybe that's how I died. I took some Tylenol for a migraine, and then I'm boop dead. So you think you're part of the Janice family? Maybe. Okay, that's the biggest odds. Damn, we'll have to. We'll have to check that out one day. But no, seriously. <laughs> now, the tainted capsules were found to have been manufactured at two different locations, Pennsylvania and Texas, suggesting that the capsules were tampered with after the product had been placed on the store shelves for sale. The police hypothesis was that someone had taken bottles off the shelves in the local stores in the Chicago area, placed the potassium cyanide in some of the capsules, and then placed the package back on the store shelves to be purchased by unknowing customers. In addition to these five bottles that led the victim's deaths, a few other contaminated bottles were later discovered in the Chicago area. Oh my gosh. Mass suicide. Honestly. In early 1983... While I was being born, at the FBI's request, a Chicago columnist wrote about the first of the youngest victims, which was Mary Kellerman. The story was written with the Kellerman's consent, of course, and basically had a theory that, hey, let's write up this letter and make this person feel bad and see if anyone comes and, you know, visits her grave. Well, both sites were kept under 24-hour video surveillance for several months, but the killer did not surface. I mean, this person was definitely a showboat kind of person because obviously all of this would have ended up in the media. So it would make sense if they would do something like that. Now, a surveillance photo of Paula Prince purchasing cyanide tamper Tylenol at Walgreens at the 1601 North Wells Street in Chicago was released by the Chicago Police Department. The police believed that a bearded man seen just feet behind Prince may actually be the killer. And also, as we spoke earlier about a man named James William Lewis, who was also accused of sending the letter to Johnson & Johnson demanding the $1 million to stop the cyanide-induced murders. Upon his arrest, James told authorities how the person behind the attacks may have carried out the killings by buying the Tylenol, adding the cyanide to the bottles, and then returning them to the store shelves. And Lewis was also found to have previously possessed a poisoning book. And according to a confidential law enforcement document, his fingerprints were discovered on pages related to cyanide. I mean, it makes sense. <laughs> Why in the hell is anyone carrying around a book of poisonings? A I don't book know. about poisonings, yeah. Yeah. Well, Lewis denied being responsible for the poisonings, but he did admit to writing the letter, which he said he had worked on for three days. During the trial, his attorney claimed that Lewis intended only to focus the attention on the authorities on his wife's former employee. Lewis was convicted of extortion and sentenced to 10 years in prison. In 2007, authorities determined that the letter had an October 1st, 1982 postmark, meaning that if Lewis's three-day timeline was accurate, he would have begun working on this letter prior to the first news report concerning the poisonings. When confronted with this information, Lewis recanted his timeline. Shocker. 
Well, court documents released in 2009 that Lewis was responsible for the poisoning, despite the fact that they did not have enough evidence to charge him. In January of 2010, both Lewis and his wife submitted DNA samples and fingerprints to the authorities. Lewis said, if the FBI plays it fair, I have nothing to worry about. The DNA samples did not match any DNA recovered on the bottles. Lewis continued to deny responsibility for the poisonings, and Lewis died on July 9th of 2023 at the age of 76. Wow, eh? Just, like, not even that long ago. Last year? Yeah. I can understand why they suspected him, but I honestly don't feel as though Lewis did it. Yeah, okay, he was shady for sure. But I feel as though they were just trying to pin it on someone so that Tylenol, you know, cannot be held responsible for it. Sometimes they just jump on whatever they can without enough evidence, and it's scary, honestly. You could be convicted of a crime that you had nothing to do with, and it's concerning to the highest degree. And now the police also investigated a second man named Roger Arnold, a dock worker at a Jewel Osco in Melrose Park, who told officials that he possessed potassium cyanide. Why the hell are you telling them this? <laughs> the bar owner, Marty Sinclair, who Arnold frequented that establishment, reported Arnold to the police, saying that Arnold had discussed killing people with white powder and had become increasingly erratic after his marriage had dissolved. Spiral, for sure, that seems. Uh-huh. Arnold had worked with the victim, Mary Rayner's father, at a warehouse, and Arnold's wife had been treated in a hospital across the street from the store in which Rayner bought her cyanide-laced pills. Now, the copy of the poor man's James Bond, which contained instructions on making potassium cyanide, was found in Arnold's home. Arnold was held several times by the police, but never charged. And in the summer of 1983, Arnold, mistaking John Stanisha for Sinclair, shot and killed Stanisha. And he was a computer consultant and a father of three who was leaving a bar with multiple friends. And Arnold was convicted of the killing in January of 1984 and served 15 years of his 30-year sentence for second-degree murder, saying in 1996 from prison, I killed a man, a perfectly innocent person. I had choices. I could have walked away. And he died on June of 2008. And in 2010, Arnold's body was exhumed and subsequently reburied so that his femur bone could be removed for DNA testing. Arnold's DNA also did not match the DNA samples discovered on the bottles. Dun, dun, dun. Another person that obviously had some serious mental health problems and, I mean, <laughs> clearly going out in the world and saying, yeah, I, I, I killed a man. I don't think he killed anyone prior to that first killing he did i think he just liked to make himself look good like yeah i killed 25 people and yeah he's one of those sick fucks that do sit there in his basement because he's got nothing else to do and just fuck around with shit and put things together and be like hey i've got cyanide in my basement i made that myself you know like i can see his energy being just so anyway i felt him earlier and he proclaimed his innocence as well so i agree that he did not do it well, so this case then continues to be unsolved throughout all these years. Oh, yeah. Now, in early January 09, federal agents searched the home of Lewis again 
in Cambridge, Mass., and seized a number of items. In Chicago, the FBI spokesperson declined to comment and said, we'll have something to release later, possibly. Law enforcement officials received a number of tips related to the case, coinciding with the 25th anniversary. In written statement, the FBI explained, This review was prompted in part by the recent 25th anniversary of the crime and the resulting publicity. Further given the many recent advances in forensic technology, it was only natural that a second look to be taken at the case and recover evidence. Now, on May 19th, 2011, the FBI requested DNA samples from the Unabomber, Ted Kizneski, in connection with the Tylenol murders. Now, Ted denied having ever possessed potassium cyanide. The first four Unabomber crimes happened in Chicago and in suburbs from 1978 to 1980, and Ted's parents had a suburban Chicago home in Lombard. And that was in 82. And that's where he usually stayed occasionally. I mean, it's crazy because there were, you know, many different copycats that were just trying to take credit for this. And they're all coming to the surface. Oh, yeah. Hundreds of copycat attacks involving Tylenol, over-the-counter medications, and other products also took place around the U.S. immediately following this, you know, series of Chicago deaths. Three more deaths occurred in 1986 from Tamper Gelatin Capsules. A 23-year-old Diane died in Yonkers, New York, after ingesting extra-strength Tylenol capsule laced with cyanide. In 1991, in Washington State, Kathleen Danker and Stanley McHorder were killed from two cyanide-tainted boxes of Sudafed, and Jennifer Maling went into a coma from a similar poisoning but recovered shortly thereafter. Jennifer's husband, Joseph Maling, was convicted on numerous charges in federal Seattle court regarding the deaths of the Danker and McHorder and the attempted murder of his own wife, who was abused during the Maling's marriage. Now, Maling was sentenced to life in prison and lost an appeal for a retrial. Now, in 86, the University of Texas student Kenneth Ferris was found dead in his apartment after also succumbing to cyanide poisoning. Tampered anison capsules were determined to be the source of the cyanide found in his body. His death was ruled as a homicide on the 30th of May of 86. On June 19, 1986, the AP reported that the Travis County Medical Examiner ruled his death as a likely suicide. The FDA determined he obtained the poison from a lab in which he worked at. The 1982 incident inspired the pharmaceutical, food, and consumer product industries to develop tamper-resistant packaging, such as induction seals and improved quality control methods. Moreover, product tampering was made a federal crime. The new laws resulted in Stella Nichols' conviction in the Excedrin tampering case, for which she was sentenced to 90 years in prison. Oh my God, I fucking take Excedrin too, Jesus. Don't stress, babe. We now all have those, you know, package seals, so we don't have to worry about that anymore. That don't mean shit. They can take a small needle and <laughs> put that shit in there. Well, take a deep breath. We're okay. In 1982 on Halloween... 
While poisoned candy being given to trick-or-treaters on Halloween is rare, (laughs) says the Candyman in an episode we did, the Tylenol incident, which unfolded in 82, raised renewed fear. Some communities discouraged trick-or-treating for Halloween, and American grocery stores reported that candy sales went down by like 20%. Now today, this still remains a mystery of what actually really took place here. I know, and what's very interesting is that there were... A lot of spirits that connect to this case, but I was mainly focusing heavily on Mary Kellerman, our first victim. That was the youngest victim as well. She had a lot to say on the matter, so I went with it. Well, all right, let's get into it. So who is involved in all of this? Well, the one thing the police did get right about this was that they're obviously definitely being tampered with directly at the stores, and it was not done in the manufacturing place. So they definitely were right on that. And how the capsules and bottles were taken off the shelves and put back. But they have no video surveillance of anything taking place, which I think is kind of weird, right? I mean, back in the 80s, though, not a lot of people felt like they had to have surveillance. Like now, definitely every place has surveillance. But back then, not many places, unless you were really rich. And a lot of these stores seemed like they were low-end stores, except for like the Walgreens, which was the only store that they did get surveillance from. I mean, that's a good point. Definitely not. But in this particular situation, they did have some video surveillance with customers obtaining the bottles, but they had nothing in relation to anyone taking them and filling them up with cyanide. It's Honestly, it's because this was done by an employee. Now, maybe not an active employee at the time, but definitely a disgruntled employee nonetheless. I know that James was also a former employee, but I feel as though it was somebody that maybe even James knew. Mary shows me that it was a pharmacist, a pharmacist that had been fired for drinking on the job or doing something, you know, to constantly get himself in trouble. And it looks as though they gave him many chances over and over again. And from what I gather, he just had some severe problems and eventually they let him go. He had a wife at home and I keep seeing the name David. I know that there was definitely like a letter M associated to, so perhaps that's the last name. He was a big drinker. He did have some major things going on in his family, his friends, you name it. I feel like he was a bit of a loner as well, spent a lot of time concocting things in his basement too. And at some point, I feel like he actually poisoned his wife, perhaps obviously not with cyanide, but she was pissing him off. He poisoned her because she was just bitching at him about everything. He would try to make her, you know, go to the washroom, basically like hurting her little by little. Kind of like, um, Brittany Murphy's, uh, psycho there. Simon. Kind of like Simon. Wow, was this like his way of getting back at the pharmacy for firing him? It's gotta be, though, for sure. Oh, yeah. Which, by the way, he's dead now, and I think he was in his 50s at the time. He had originally taken the supply from his store that he worked at. I see that he still had key and access to go in the building. And from there, he took the supplies and took them home. Like, I feel like the key was like, you know, those like, I don't know, maybe like a pin pad or I don't fucking know. Something. Like a key fob or something? No. Well, it was the 80s. I doubt that was a fob. <laughs> but I there's like a pin pad And they never changed the code. So basically anyone who worked there previously or current, 
knew the code. So he was able to access at any point. But he also took bottles home with him to do experiments on. Not just Tylenol, like other shit too. But he would take these things home and mess around with them and be like, ha ha ha, cyanide problems, ha ha ha, like weirdo. Anyway, I feel like the supplies came from the back where he decided to exchange them for the ones in the front. And he put them like, you know, on the shelf. He also took a couple of extra and decided to switch it out with the other ones in the store. And I'm thinking as well, like he did this at like 5 a.m. before the store was open. No security footage. I believe that there was like a big method to his madness. I even see him like humming some sort of like weird song doing it too. I think it was Pop Goes the Weasel actually. But anyways, creepy. He obviously made sure that there was no cameras around to catch him doing it either, which is why he was able to get away with what he did. And the police were right. He absolutely enjoyed the hell out of the attention, and he felt like he was some mastermind, untouchable. He thought that he committed the perfect flawless crime, and I believe he told his nurses at some point in nursing home about it, and they were like, okay there, cuckoo pants. I mean, that would make kind of sense, though, why there wasn't any footage of anybody doing it. Not only was he working at the store at the time, but also a lot of stores, if you go in early, like even stores now, sometimes they don't have a 24 hour surveillance, especially back then. They may have had a tape that would like pop on at a certain time, like, oh, doors open at nine, 9 a.m. Camera starts rolling. So if he went in at like five in the morning, there would be no reason for them to be recording anything because no customers are in there stealing. And that's mainly what, you know, they had cameras for back then was because people stealing, not because they were thinking pharmacists were going around putting cyanide in bottles. Yeah, good point. Now, did anyone actually ever suspect him? I mean, I guess so if he was disgruntled, right? <laughs> yeah, I feel like there were a few people, but his wife suspected him the most because he would make pipe bombs and do some crazy shit with some poison he did concoct a lot of poisons, you know, due to his pharmaceutical background, and he enjoyed it. From what I gather, this was not the first time that he had poisoned somebody, although he didn't put any sort of lethal amount, you know, in the previous pill capsule. But I do see that he did something to poison someone at some point as well in his earlier age in the pharmaceutical years. Jesus, this guy was just sick from the get-go. Should have never been a pharmacist. Oh, absolutely. As soon as the first victim had died, and obviously it came out on the news, he was so happy and elated, like he went into full-blown like Joker mode. He felt like he was, you know, coming from Christ. He thought that he did this from what Mary shows me. She confronted him after he had passed away, and he basically shushed her away like a grumpy old man when someone comes on your property. So he basically had no remorse for what he did. Not even the slightest, but from what Mary shows me, he got carried off by the evil spirits from hell about 10 years ago. And he's literally being poisoned day in and day out by the worst possible poison and suffering for eternal damnation over and over again. That's got to suck so bad, you know, getting brought back from being poisoned and then poisoned again. <laughs> like, geez, that is a terrible death there. Well, you do the crime. <laughs> I cannot personally see that, but that's what Mary showed me. She's got a very active imagination and she does not hold back anything, which is why I liked connecting with her. The other people were like, oh, yeah, 
this happened, but Mary was like, no, this is the truth. This is what happened. <laughs> Anyways, moving forward, his wife refused to tell the police, but she did accuse him of it. And I also believe his kids also accused him of it as well. They're still alive to this day and they still feel as though their dad did something extremely bad, but they have yet to let anyone know because they don't want the backlash or the media coverage for keeping something like this for so long. I feel like they may have found some evidence proving otherwise that the father was the killer. I mean, and then, you know, you got this poor guy who's been sitting in prison for 10 years who didn't even do it at all. And then here he is, the number one suspect. He's been sitting in a cell while this guy was like getting away with murder. Oh, yeah. And he knew him. So, I, yeah, I bet. Crazy. Uh, another thing Mary wanted to mention is that he had fucked with some things to make sure that Lewis was the one who went down for it. He may have been one to involve, you know, communicating with Lewis throughout the situation, gave him that moral support. Yeah, you write that letter. But really, it was just to find out details of what was taking place because Lewis had, you know, some insider information. And the scent was never on him, so they like, you know, he just left it as is. Although I do believe that Lewis himself also suspected him, but was afraid to say anything. I mean, I don't really care how afraid I am, even though I'm never afraid of anything. But even if I am, I am not going to let someone make me go to jail. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to be like, nope, it was fucking this guy. He was like trying to, he's trying to frame me or something, brah. Like I'm telling you, because I'm not going down for nothing. Exactly. I agree with you on that. It's crazy to me on how all this transpired. And this man is not an intelligent human being. He's a psychopath with a pharmaceutical degree. Should be checking these people's mentality before they go into this kind of thing, you know? Right? Now, is there anything else that Mary wants to add? She's been dying to say this for a long time, but no one really ever tried to connect with her to give her, you know, her side of the story. Although I couldn't really feel too much of the other people's information too much, but Mary was just prominent, which is why we went with her. So that's basically it. Well, we definitely appreciate Mary and all her help with this case today. Now, next week, we have a bit of a busy week for you guys. We will be dropping our first Black History Month episode. And that one is going to be Danette and Jeanette Millbrook. We also will be dropping our bonus episode of the Illuminati. Oh, yeah. And then after that, we're going to be dropping Sam Cooke, Aaliyah, Carly Geis. So lots to come over this month. So enjoy. It's going to be a busy week indeed. Until next time, guys, stay freaked out. <laughs>